0: TED Audio Collective. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on creditworthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Canva.com. Designed for work.
1: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with the designer of the 9-11 Memorial, Michael Arad. I think design is, is a process. It's about constraints, and it's about responding to these constraints creatively, but without losing uh, the vision of what you're trying to do here. And at the end of eight years, I feel we've been remarkably true. Here's Debbie Milman.
0: The country recently marked the 10th anniversary of September 11th. At the World Trade Center site, after many years of delay, the Freedom Tower is quickly rising and will soon reach its symbolic height of 1,776 feet. Down below in the footprints of the original Twin Towers is the National September 11th Memorial, which just opened to the public. The memorial was designed by Michael Arad. Seven years ago, Arad's design beat out more than 5,000 other designs for what is probably the most important commission since Maya Lin completed the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in 1982. Welcome, Michael. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for being here today. So... You won the design competition for the World Trade Center Memorial in 2004. What made you decide to enter the competition to begin with?
1: I actually uh, started to think about a memorial design uh, a few months after the attack. I was here in New York and uh, witnessed both the attacks, but I think more importantly, the way in which New York responded to to that moment in time. And uh, I was a relative newcomer to the city had been living here for about two and a half years and still felt a little bit like an outsider but that relationship that i had to the city changed in the days and weeks that followed that attack that sense of sort of having a distance from everybody else having some sort of remove disappeared we all came together in a remarkable way and i don't think there was a moment of thinking about it it just happened we had to come together and support one another and he saw that in many different ways here in New York. He saw it at street corners with these impromptu memorials. He saw it at places like Washington Square and Union Square where people came together. And I had, you know, one of those moments that I think marked for me that sense of no longer being a stranger here. A few nights after the attack when I couldn't sleep and I walked over to Washington Square and, uh, stood at the fountain at the center of that square and I came there by myself and there were a dozen or so other people standing around that fountain that probably also came there alone or with a friend and there was no speech there was no ceremony there was just a circle of people standing together in silent contemplation and all of a sudden I could face what I had seen all the the dread and horror and the fear uh, in a different mind frame as a member of a community and I think we offered solace and compassion to each other and in doing so uh responded collectively and i don't think i couldn't respond individually to that day you had to to respond collectively to that day you had to find strength in others and you had to offer strength to others and i think that was uh there was something beautiful about the way we came together we came together with a sort of sense of a strength of stoicism of defiance but also with compassion and um I think that's what drove me to, to start imagining the design of the memorial.
0: I read that after 9-11 that you started working on the design before the competition was even announced and that the, the way in which it was described was somewhat like Richard Dreyfus creating this sort of mountain that he did in Encounters of the Third Kind. And I was wondering if somehow you felt meant to do this, that this was somehow part of your destiny in some ways.
1: I don't think I thought of it in those terms, but this image that sort of came to me and that I felt compelled to to understand and to to study uh, and sketch and model was this idea of the surface of the Hudson River being torn open, forming two square voids and the water flowing into these voids, but not filling them up. Um, and despite the, the rush of water into these voids, it would forever remain empty. And I think it spoke of that idea of the persistence of absence, of this rupture that occurred. And I spent close to a year in my free time sketching and building and eventually constructed a small fountain, a small sculpture. It was only about a foot by a foot in size, and it had a small pump inside it. And the water pumped the water up to form this sheet of water that was then interrupted by two voids and then the water fell into those voids and I was recirculated back up. And you could barely make out the movement of the water, but it was about that that surface just being torn open. Uh, and I took this model and photographed it on the rooftop of my apartment against the skyline of Manhattan. And I could see the absence of the towers in the skyline being mirrored in these two voids in the foreground. And then I felt as if I completed that investigation. It was something that this sort of issue that had bothered me for a year, and I finally resolved it, in a way. And uh, I set it aside on a tall shelf, and I didn't come back to it until a year later, when a competition was held for the design of the master plan at the site.
0: Now, did you know? Did you think, okay, this is this is why I created it? This is going to happen now?
1: No, absolutely no? not. You know, there were, I think, something like 13,000 people that entered the competition, eventually 5,200 people sent in a submission. And I never entered this competition uh, with the uh, hope of uh, having this design selected. It was um, a very sort of cathartic, self-motivated design exercise to come to terms with what I'd seen, but more importantly, to imagine the kind of memorial that I would want to go to one day. And I thought about those experiences that I had in these public spaces in New York, like Washington Square, and how important these public spaces were to bring us together, not just physically into one space, but to bring us together emotionally, allow us to to lean on one another. And these places, on a normal day, it's the where the farmers market is, where the kids on the skateboard are, where people are walking through with their kids. Uh, but at a difficult moment, like after that attack, these are the places that we come together. Mm-hmm. And you know, and then I see a sort of analogous relationship to a place like Tahrir Square, where people gather for a revolution, or where we gather at Times Square after VE Day, I mean, there's just there's something about the need to come together in these public spaces, and these public spaces have uh, a social role to play that reflects on our values as a society, but it also reinforces them and and brings that, that sense of uh, democratic values, that we share the space, that we share ideas, that we share emotions. And so I wanted to bring that to the site, and I wanted to bring that together with the idea of the the voids, the the sense of absence, of making something that is no longer here present and visible, not through its reconstruction, not through building another tower, but by making the absence of the towers, the absence of the people, so um, palpable.
0: Can you describe the memorial for our listeners? I think one of the interesting things about having a radio show on design is that you really have to talk about the ideas as opposed to show them. And I was wondering if you could describe the memorial for our listeners, the ultimate memorial that was designed.
1: The memorial is really, um, I think, needs to be understood, first of all, as a memorial plaza. And that's its relationship to the city and the neighborhood that it's in. It's a clearing, an eight-acre clearing in the middle of the city. And if you know Lower Manhattan, it's one of the densest, most built places in the world. You have this uh, old street grid that was laid out by the Dutch hundreds of years ago. So you have these very narrow and crooked streets that over centuries, office towers have gone up on them. And the sky is barely visible. It's this sort of sliver at the top of a building. Uh, It's as if you're at the bottom of a deep canyon when you walk through these streets. And very often, even if you were a block or two away from the World Trade Center towers, you couldn't see them because of that. And now, 16 acres of that World Trade Center site, half of those 16 acres, eight acres, have been set aside to form a memorial plaza that is defined by the four streets which ring it. You have West Street and Greenwich Street running north-south and Fulton and Liberty running east-west. And as you come out through these narrow streets, kind of like coming out of a narrow valley onto a wide open plain, all of a sudden you see this eight-acre clearing that's going to be clearly defined by the towers that rise around it, forming walls around this enormous room. And as you walk into this and onto this plaza, uh, you encounter this forest of some 400 oak trees. And you walk under their canopy, and I think you are firmly within Manhattan, but at the same time you have the quality of looking at Manhattan as if you're outside of it, as if you're at some distance from it, which is an interesting juxtaposition of views which you would never be able to have from uh from these narrow streets and i think clearing the site and setting it aside is a f- the first act of commemoration of of saying that this place is significant as you walk deeper into this memorial plaza you will come up to the edge of one of two enormous voids which are located where the tower footprints the actual were.
0: footprint of both towers
1: right and uh there are reflecting pools that are set 30 feet below you, deeply recessed into the mass of the plaza. It's as if it's this large, flat plain that stretches across eight acres that's been cut to form these two square voids. And the edges of these cuts are, are defined by waterfalls that cascade down some 30 feet into a reflecting pool that's below you. And then at the center of each pool is a secondary void where the water falls into uh, another void, a 30-by-30-foot void that seems to be bottomless. You cannot see the bottom of that void. You just see the water rushing into it, but it remains empty. And surrounding the voids at plaza level are the names. The edge of the void is defined by an 8-foot-wide and 2-foot-high water table that serves as a springing point for the waterfalls on one side. And on the other side, suspended above this water table, are bronze wing-like elements, a sort of a sculptural, angular element that seems to hover over the water. And it is made of a half-inch thick bronze plate. The bronze is patinaed in a very dark brown color, sort of like statuary bronze. And the letters are formed by cutting out the material, creating shadows during the day. And at night, these panels are illuminated from within, and the letters uh, glow. And you can see a name, and as you walk past it, that name disappears, and another one appears.
0: That sounds magnificent. I understand the placement of the names of the people that were lost were designed in what you termed meaningful adjacencies. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: I didn't want to create something that felt like uh, a list of names. I wanted to give each name a space that belonged to it to emphasize it, the notion of individual loss that was suffered that day. and hold it against this idea of of communal loss, and to see the names both as individuals but also as part of this much larger group. The names are arranged in five rows which ring the pools, but the names are not arranged in stacked columns. They're staggered across. Some are short, some are long, and so there is no um, visual ordering mechanism to them. I wanted each name to have a specific geographic spot on this memorial that was unique to it and that defined uh, that name as belonging to that spot. And that's just sort of the the first visual sweep uh, that, as a visitor, you will encounter. But there is a sort of a a hidden, embedded meaning within the arrangement that came out of uh, this idea that I described as meaningful adjacencies, uh, that there should be a meaning to why one name is adjacent to another name. And we actually reached out to family members, close to 3,000 families, and asked them, are there names of other victims that you would like to see their name inscribed next to the name of the person that you lost? And in doing so, allow very deep and personal meaning to come into the arrangement so that we could have the names of family members side by side, so we could have the names of friends and coworkers and people that commuted together and people that went to college together years before, people that happened to die together that day. Whatever the family members thought was important to them, we would try to bring into the arrangement. And when I first suggested this idea in 2004, it was seen as so logistically fraught with difficulties that it just could not be undertaken. And that upset a lot of family members who felt that the names should be arranged with meaning. Um, And I agreed with that. But we just couldn't find any other way of arranging the names that was going to be fair and equitable to all. Even something as simple as the idea of an alphabetical listing would have been completely wrong for this. We had two victims of that attack that shared the same first, middle, and last name. And I imagine listing their names side by side and having their friends and family members come to the memorial and not know which if those two names belonged to the person that they lost. We had people who were engaged to be married or people who were married who had different last names. That their names would not be side by side, uh, whereas we had other people who were uh, family members who did share the same last name and would have their name listed together. And that just felt in some way wrong, that some families would have uh, the ability to walk up to a single panel and see all the people that they lost, where other people would have to go to two different parts of the memorial. And it wasn't until 2006 when the mayor became chairman of the Memorial Foundation that he thought we have to tackle all the controversy that surrounded the names arrangement and find a way to move this project forward. And I was able to bring back this idea of meaningful adjacency at that point and join it to another idea that the mayor brought to the table of listing people by geographic location. And so the names are arranged in nine broad categories, which reflect where people were that day, the four flights, the two towers in the Pentagon, the 93 bombing victims, and the first responders. And the first responders, in turn, are arranged by where they came from, from the same firehouse, from the same precinct building. But within these groups, the names appear to be arranged randomly, and some of these groups have well over 1,000 names within them. And so that's where the Meaningful Adjacency took over in arranging the names both within these groups, but also in relationship from one group to the next. So for example, one request we got was from a woman who lost her father, who was a passenger on Flight 11, and lost her best friend from college that day, who was working at the North Tower. And so we ended one group with her father's name and began the next group with her friend's name. And when you hear a story like this, it's incredibly uh, touching and moving and and, and sad And I think that's important because there's a way to connect these individual stories, not just with the friends and family members who come to see this memorial, and for them it will be meaningful to see those names side by side, but with the general public, whether it's through a a printed guide or an audio guide or a video guide, to start building up an understanding of the toll of that day through individual stories. Because when you hear close to 3,000 dead, that's a number that feels incomprehensible. How do you relate to that? I personally find that very difficult to, to find a way into that number. But when you hear one story and then another and another, you build up a partial understanding. And I think every time you come back to the memorial, you might learn a couple more stories, find another way to relate to this memorial, and keep uh, the meaning of, of that day and the losses that were suffered alive.
0: I read that in Secret Proceedings, uh, Maya Lin was somebody who was really advocating for your design in the original competition. Did you work with her at all? Any any further in the creation of the memorial?
1: No, I haven't. And in fact, uh, I completely misread her because uh, I remember at some point uh, I was presenting at Gracie Mansion. And at the end of my presentation, I think at this point I was one of three finalists uh, the jurors broke into applause, and I was completely stunned. It was the last thing I expected. But then I also noticed that one person wasn't clapping, and it was her. So I thought, well, everybody else seemed to to uh, have a positive reaction to what I had shown them. But uh,
0: I think she's very shy. I met her once many, many, many years ago at a poker party, actually, cards. Uh-huh. Um, and she was very shy. And so perhaps if she was shy there, she'd be even more shy in an environment like that.
1: Or poker-faced. <laughs>
0: That's a good point. Of the eight finalists that presented their designs before the memorial jury, I understand that you were the only person who appeared without a team or without a partner. Talk about that experience if you can.
1: That's how it started. Um, And I did ask Peter Walker to join me at some point. During the deliberations with the jury, one concern they had was about the landscape elements on the memorial plaza. And at that point, I had shown them a plaza with about 80 eastern white pine trees. But more importantly, I talked about a plaza that was going to connect to the life of the city. And the site, when I entered the competition, was defined by a master plan that suggested keeping the site some 30 feet below street level. And I thought that everything should be brought up to street level. And we should create a memorial plaza here that connects seamlessly to the sidewalks and streets around us without any significant grade change that would inhibit people from coming on to the plaza that would create the sense of, uh, of an enclosed space. If you think of the original World Trade Center Plaza, uh, that was elevated. It was a full story up above street level, and it felt cut off from the life of the city. And I thought we should bring the life of the city back to the site, that this is a site for memory, but it's also a site for work and play in a strange way. And it sounds a little dissonant at first, but that was actually the word I ended my competition entry submission on, play to emphasize how this had to be tied back into the life of the city, that office workers in the surrounding buildings should feel free to come down here for 10 minutes during a lunch break, that neighborhood residents and their kids should, should freely walk in here and find a place for them and for their activities. And that was something that I communicated to the jury. And when uh, I heard that criticism, that it still felt austere, that it still felt overly dedicated to memorial use on that spectrum of development of design language, I could understand where that criticism came from. And it took me a while to find the right response. I was concerned that a very figural pattern, a strong grid, or a a clear shape uh, that would guide the landscape design could very much compete with the clarity of that first design gesture of this big, flat, vast plane, this eight-acre datum that's then carved by these two voids. and. In fact, I consulted with a number of people. Uh, one of them was my um, professor of urban form and landscaping at Georgia Tech, uh, Doug Allen. And he made a very cryptic remark about, well, think of it as a tablecloth. And I had no idea what he meant. A um, tablecloth. Yeah, thinking of the landscape design. And I thought about it for, uh, for a couple of days. And I thought about how a tablecloth conforms to the shape of the table, right? If it's round, if it's square, the tablecloth can't change that, right? But what the tablecloth can do is kind of be pushed and pulled, tugged and and adjusted to conform to that sort of first design. And I came up with this idea that I called abacus-like bands. A series of paving bands of different widths would span the plaza from one edge to the next. And then along the length of the bands, like beads on the wires of an abacus, trees could be placed at random intervals. And what that did, it came in with a a softer order. Uh, It wasn't this sort of clear, rigid pattern, but one that kind of accommodated itself to the geometry of the voids and to the plaza. And as you look along the east-west axis, which is established by these bands, you see these beautiful long rows of trees kind of snapping into order. But as your gaze shifts north or south, all of a sudden that order completely dissipates and... uh, you get a much more random, staggered, naturalistic placement of the trees, which I think reinforced the intention of uh, of the first design move. Uh, it didn't uh, undermine it. And uh, I reached out to Peter and I asked for his help in implementing this idea.
0: You were initially criticized for the minimalism of your first design. And then you went and presented a revised version When you first submitted your plans, you were quite a young architect. You were in your early 30s. What was it like to suddenly be submerged in city politics and in the bureaucracy of putting together arguably the most important memorial ever created?
1: I don't know that it is the most important memorial ever created. Certainly Uh, one
0: of the most.
1: But... uh... On the question of the difficulties of, of taking something that was designed individually, you know, I was sketching by myself in my study something that was me imagining the type of memorial I might want to go to one day, and all of a sudden to go from a constituency of one to a constituency of thousands was very challenging. And I think I had to to understand that process. Despite the very reflective nature of this Memorial design, I think at times i I just sort of forged ahead uh without pausing to reflect because i I believed in the clarity and the strength of the design and uh in its character, and I just felt an obligation to to be true to that vision and uh I think that was part of the process that the jury also put us through when they looked at eight finalists and then at three and uh, eventually selected this design was There were a series of questions, and uh, there was some pushing. Could this change? Could that change? And there were certainly things which changed throughout that process, but they changed in a way that I think was consistent with the character of this uh, memorial. And there were other changes that were requested that I said, I can't do that. That's not going to benefit this design. That's going to actually undermine it.
0: What gave you that courage of your convictions? How were you able to say no so confidently?
1: If you wouldn't say no to some things. You would lose everything. And there was no point in, you know, holding on to, to quicksand. There were things that I just believed in, and I felt that this memorial should reflect. It's like writing a book in some ways, and you develop a character, and when you're writing dialogue for that character, you know when that dialogue rings true and when it doesn't sound right. And it's the same with design. Uh, you have a clear idea, and certainly along the way obstacles will present themselves challenges. And the question as a designer is how do you respond to this in a way that keeps your design consistent with, uh, with the vision that you you had from day one but adapts to new circumstances. I think design is is a process. It's about constraints, and it's about responding to these constraints creatively but without losing uh, the vision of what you're trying to do here. And at the end of eight years, I feel we've been remarkably true. And we should be very happy with the design we have for not becoming something altogether different. It could have easily become a, a shrill memorial or a bellicose memorial or a self-pitying memorial. It, it didn't. It held true to what I saw here in New York, which was that sense of, of defiance and compassion. And bringing those two things together side by side was very important to me. And I, and you just knew if we made that change or this change, it was going to change the, the very heart of the design.
0: You described yourself as having a dual role in this eight-year journey as a designer and as an advocate. Can you talk a little bit more about what you meant by as an advocate?
1: Well, you had to advocate for the design. There's this sort of act of, you know, retreating to the studio or wherever it is and sketching and drawing and resolving an issue. But then there's also the aspect of conveying that to the multitude of people who are involved in this day-to-day of sharing this vision with them, and of convincing them that this is something that they want to help you pursue. And in fact, their contribution can enrich this. So there are things in this design that came out of other people. But I think it was about providing that clear sense of direction to guide all of us together, to sort of build um, an entire crew that together was going to row this boat to the finish line. You can't do a project like this alone. And you shouldn't. This is a project that had to be open to uh, input and feedback and criticism and suggestions and knowing full well that you couldn't incorporate every bit of criticism and every suggestion because very often they were at odds with each other. But that every voice had to be heard, had to be considered and not sort of just heard and brushed off, but heard and and thought about the very root of what a request was. And perhaps the suggestion would be the wrong suggestion, but the reason for that suggestion was a valid reason that you had to find a way to address.
0: In the eight years since the competition, it seems as if everything that could happen in the building of this memorial has... One of the things that you've said that I, I thought was really interesting in understanding the political process was this, Uh, whether I wanted to or not, I learned that you can accept some changes to its form without compromising its intent. But it's a leap of faith that I didn't want to make initially. And I'm wondering what changed in the process to allow you to take that leap of faith and allow others to participate in the process with you?
1: Well, to keep up the sort of the leap analogy, it's sort of like jumping And you're falling and you realize that you're still falling and and that you have time to resolve this issue. I should be very grateful to the process for allowing that to happen, especially on a project like this, which was under fierce criticism for deadlines and delays, that people like Amanda Byrd and like Kate Love and people who were the, the eyes and ears of Mayor Bloomberg on this project made sure that as we... Had to deal with new obstacles. We were given the opportunity to address those um, issues thoughtfully, and uh, not with all the time in the world, but not not finding the first solution that might address that problem and moving on. So, for example, one issue was the names arrangement. Another issue was uh, a question that was raised late in the game by the mayor's office of people with disabilities. And the panels are very accessible to the touch, to the sight, when you're seated in a wheelchair. And you're visiting the memorial. But that secondary void at the center of each pool was not visually accessible uh, to everybody that was in a wheelchair. If you're short-statured and sitting in a wheelchair, the name panel itself, which I thought was the heart of the experience, blocked your view of the secondary void, which I thought was less important. But they said it's equally important to us to see that. And at a moment like that, a lot of bad ideas bubble up to the surface. Somebody says, why don't we put a little scissor lift on the plaza that goes up and down for people in a wheelchair? Maybe we'll change some of the bronze panels to glass. Maybe instead of having a continuous ribbon of names, we'll interrupt it periodically with gaps that allow people to see through them. And all of these ideas felt not just that they were not organic to the nature of the design, but they just looked like retrofits And nothing in a design like this could look tacked on, created after the fact, as if it was inserted here to address a single concern, but wasn't part of the overall composition. And eventually, because we had the time to look at this carefully, we ended up chamfering the corner. Instead of coming to a sharp 90-degree corner, we sort of snipped a little triangle off that corner, creating two 45-degree turns and uh, the bronze panel almost like a piece of origami sort of folds itself and reappears as the panel as it turns the corner goes from five rows to three rows of names and back to five and as a result of this change this sort of physical change to the design that came out of the desire to address better sight lines by bringing people closer to the inside edge where the waterfall is We were now able to wrap the names in a closed circle of names rather than stopping and starting at the corner, which poetically was much more meaningful. And sculpturally, the corner looked better. It sort of uh, jutted out almost like the prow of a ship. um, The bronze folded um, in a beautiful sculptural way. And the design improved for it, but it took the time to investigate it. One of the other changes to the design was the placement of the names. The names uh, were always at the edge of the void, and I always imagined coming up to the edge of the void, seeing this enormous inaccessible space, a space that you cannot enter, that you can only stand on the edge of. It's this threshold that separates the living from the dead, and that's where you would encounter the names, close to 1,500 names around each pool. And I thought the scale of the space and the multitude of names were going to make this an incredibly powerful moment, the most powerful moment, really, uh, of visiting the memorial. And I wanted to shield that moment in a space that would encourage that sort of thoughtful contemplation in a moment where one feels very vulnerable and overwhelmed. And so I suggested a cloister-like space, a memorial gallery that would ring the pools, level with them behind the waterfalls. And because of security reasons and budgetary reasons and uh, concerns that some family members had about going below this memorial plaza, we were asked to bring the names up from where they were, level with a pool, 30 feet straight up, to plaza level. And when that demand was made, I was very apprehensive at first that uh, that moment of encounter would be difficult to to replicate up at plaza level, the power of that moment. And that, I think, is one of those leaps of faith that I did not want to take. But, you know, I was sort of pushed off that cliff, in a <laughs> sense. And I had yeah. to find a way to resolve that.
0: Was there ever a time in the process where you felt like this was just not going to happen?
1: No. Uh, but I think I was concerned about how it would happen, that it could become something different. That that almost terrified me more <laughs> than it not happening at all, uh, that it would be a compromise memorial, something that, that I started, but then became something that I wouldn't want to to see because I mean, it would be worse than not doing anything at all than to create something that you felt would uh, add insult to injury. Mm-hmm. But on the, the panel, once the names were brought up, we spent two, three years just finding the right way to create that moment of encounter at plaza level, you know, level with the surrounding streets and sidewalks in full view of the city. And it took some time to find a way to make that moment just as meaningful, just as powerful as it had been before when it was in the memorial galleries. And it took changes to the design of how the names would be displayed. It took changes to the landscape arrangement of bringing the trees 10 feet away from the edge of these panels to create this permeable canopy overhead that is not completely closed, but does provide you a sense of shelter. And using the sound of the water to create an acoustical envelope that It does not isolate you from the city, but filters the sounds and sights of the city. And I think in many ways, the design actually got better as a result of this. And I certainly wouldn't have believed that initially. It took a long process. And I certainly didn't know that we would be able to find it. I don't think I had the confidence initially that we would be able to recapture this. And I think it would have been hubristic to to think, yeah, sure, no problem. We'll be able to do exactly the same thing up above. It took time to find that. But we recaptured it, and in some ways I think we distilled it to its core essence. That encounter with a void that before happened by itself is now married to that first encounter with the names. And it's a very strong and powerful moment. And that these names are at plaza level I think is very significant. They're not cut off from the life of the city as they were before, set aside in a, in a solemn place of encounter, but brought up. The plaza level to really exist side by side with all the other activities that are going to occur here on the plaza, and I think that that speaks of the confidence in that idea that these public spaces are resilient that they that they allow for these things to to occur side by side without any loss of meaning that in fact they are enriched by the proximity to others that office workers just like the people who died here that day are going to be a few feet away during their lunch break, that neighborhood residents, families like the families that were on these planes are going to be walking by here with their kids.
0: In reading about all of the obstacles that were put in your way as this was being created, I couldn't help but marvel at your resilience in the steadfast way you were committed to really making this happen. And if you look back at all of the people that were involved in this during the journey. You're one of the few names that were there at the beginning and and all the way there till the moment of completion. What advice would you have for people that are taking a creative journey that is complicated? How do you encourage people to stay close enough to their vision to feel proud of the work, but also work with others in a way that's collaborative?
1: It's hard. I think in some ways it's a lesson that has to be learned individually uh, through time. I, when I started this process, I had a number of people that I've worked with before that advised me and and whose advice I truly valued, and I can still hear their advice, and it means something different to me now, having gone through this than uh, it did then. So I'm a little hesitant to sort of share that advice again um, because, it, you know, until you go through this it's hard to understand but be flexible without losing sight of what is important about the project learn to separate the the essence and the ideas of a project from you know one of a thousand variations of how it could be because every project can be pushed and pulled in different ways without becoming something altogether different there are certainly lines that if we had crossed them would have taken this project into altogether uh, different territory. And you have to know where those lines are, but you also need to not fall in love with one version of your project. Fall in love with the idea. Don't fall in love with, you know, that material or that Mm -hmm. particular form. Fall in love with the intent of of your project.
0: Los Angeles architect Tom Main said that the memorial has a solemnness, a simplicity, and an otherness which is absolutely perfect. So thank you, Michael, for being on the show today and for creating something that is absolutely perfect. Thank you. You can find out more about Michael Arad on the website of Hendel Architects. I'd like to thank you for listening, and remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.